Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is provided for you by the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Government Department. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics about government. Some may be surprising to you and some may not, so please enjoy. Welcome to episode 24 of the Let's Talk Government podcast, the impact of the Chauvin trial. I'm joined by Dr. Thor Dolly, Dr. Carl Lafada, and Dr. John Reed from the Law Enforcement Program at Minnesota State University, Mankato. You will remember them from various podcasts throughout the year, and they were my guests on our first podcast talking about defunding the police. Thank you for joining me today as we come full circle to end the academic year of our podcast. So the Chauvin trial just ended with a verdict of guilty on all three counts. So we're just going to kind of have a conversation about the impact of the Chauvin trial, our thoughts about that, how it might impact law enforcement now and in the future, and maybe why students decide to go into law enforcement or not. So I'm going to open it up. What do you think the impact is of the guilty verdicts on law enforcement? I think the concern is, how it's seen or as accepted as a chance for change or what has happened frequently in the past, which is a tendency for defensiveness. No one likes to be criticized or, or uh, characterized in a light that they don't appreciate. The, the real challenge here is to recognize if something's wrong, it, you need to address it and to accept some of that responsibility to accept the desire from the communities that they want to see change and a change in policing. Kind of when we had that discussion about defunding, there's been people in policing for years have said that there's things that need to be changed. Maybe this is the time to do that. And I don't think that the, I guess the effect of this would be to scare people away from uh, joining uh, police departments. I think that you're still going to have people who are interested in serving their communities, being a, a uh, example for other people to follow, doing good things, uh, you know, under the guise of authority and using that authority for the good uh, of society uh, rather than, you know, for, for some oppressive purpose. And so you're not going to be scaring away, so to speak, the, the good uh, people that want to do this job. I think that is, is a, a uh, reactionary kind of thing that you'll hear from, from some pundits. But uh, just in my experience, and I know I've spoken with many of you already that uh, have had similar experiences here, the students saw what happened uh, to George Floyd and not one student thought that Derek Chauvin was in the right. And so, you know, he basically got uh, the verdict that, uh, you know, was, was, uh, deserved for the act that he committed. And no student sees that as being a quote war on police or people not supporting or backing the blue. They see that as essentially a just verdict for a crime that had been committed and, and recorded on film. And one of the things that I really think is t- taking this kind of from a broad approach down to, uh, we can get more specific, but I think you're going to see more comprehensive change uh, in relation to this. And when, I, when I'm talking about more comprehensive uh, encompassing a larger group of people to make these changes. Uh, I think you're going to see changes in policing. I think you're going to see some changes in the legislature about what 
some of the laws. I think there's going to be a, a review of some of those, some things like uh, qualified immunity, which you're already seeing in a lot of different places. So I, I think it's going to be a much broader view of everything that encompasses law enforcement is being looked at and the possibility of that being changed. Well, I, I think, don't think oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think another thing that the impact is, is that he was held accountable for doing something that was very visible in public. Uh, we heard from a lot of current and active law enforcement officers that they did not agree with what he was doing. So this actually did demonstrate that there was some accountability for his act of um, dealing on George Floyd and causing his death. So I think that was interesting, not only for the public to see that accountability, but also to see some accountability within law enforcement. Because we all know of incidents that there should have been something that happened, whether someone got charged criminally or whether they should have been um, disciplined within their agency and it, nothing ever happened out of it. So this was a little bit of accountability. Carl, what were you going to say? I was just going to say that, you know, building on, on John's point that, you know, there's going to be change. Uh, there's going to be, you know, what one might consider to be reform. But I also think that that change in reform is going to be like it has been historically. And that's kind of at a gl more glacial pace. Um, if you look at uh, the civil disturbances of the 1960s and the first time really we had police abuse of power caught uh, on camera, uh, the television broadcast, for example, of uh, Selma, Alabama and the civil rights marches, for example, um, the uh, anti-war protests and things of, of that nature, uh, the Chicago police riot in 1968. You start looking at those types of situations and the federal programs that came uh, after that, you know, to fund law enforcement education and to push more police officers uh, into getting higher levels of education than had previously been required, uh, you know, post and uh, those types of licensure boards were basically established in most states uh, following those revelations, but really not a whole lot changed. And so you're really not going to see, or I wouldn't hold my breath to see massive change at, say, for example, a federal level that would uh, establish a federal standard, let's say, like the fire service has for law enforcement training and education and things of that nature. But what you will see is that continually glacial, and I use the term glacial because it is a very slow uh, evolution um, because law enforcement is drawn from society at large. And as society at large has their viewpoints and attitudes change, so will the attitudes uh, be different in, in uh, amongst the law enforcement officers that come into the, the career field. And, you know, just look at my father's um, attitudes about things like race and LGBT issues. And he came into Detroit PD in the mid 1960s versus, you know, today's officers, it's not thought of the same. So we have kind of this organic uh, reform that occurs simply because we're bringing people in with different viewpoints than had previously existed. I, I think that I'm, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Thor. The, 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 frag, the fragmented nature of policing in our country is going to lead to exactly that. It's, you're not going to see rapid change. It's going to, something will change in one place, not in another place. Uh, you'll see defensiveness closing of ranks in some agencies where they refuse to change some that are going to be more, more open to change. I do think that there should there is some concern about the number of people that will enter into policing. In some places, it probably won't be affected significantly. In others, it will be. Um, right now, it's not just the Chauvin trial. It's bigger than that because it's it's become national news every time anything happens. 
that could be seen negatively. And that's going to continue for a while. So I do think in some jurisdictions where the heat has been hotter, you're going to see people reluctant to want to join an organization that's constantly vilified, either sometimes correctly, sometimes unfairly, but people have a lot of choices. The one good thing it could be though, that it may draw in a new group of people that was perhaps once reluctant to join policing because of what it represented, that if they do see some type of change, that they're now willing to be part of that, that leads to some of that diversity and, and a willingness to see things differently, train differently, all those things that could be help accelerate that glacial change. But because it's, it's so random around our country, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a long time unless there was a change in that somehow uh, that established requirements like education and training requirements that we've lacked for years. Well, and I can speak from my own research into this topic because I, that was actually part of my doctoral dissertation. Um, and I think you and I Thor, have talked about it in the past, but when I, when I spoke with Michigan's civil service, uh, department. Um, my research was on state troopers and the effect of post-secondary education, and they said quite flatly that they would not uh, support increasing the minimum requirement for state police or other police licensure to uh, higher than a high school diploma or GED, because then in terms of the trooper rank, uh, for the Michigan State Police, they would have to class the job classification as a profession and therefore the starting pay would be higher and so they would be completely opposed to that. Um, but what I think education and training, uh, you know, reaching out to new uh, and underrepresented groups in, in law enforcement, uh, for example, Lincoln University in Missouri just established, it's the very first historically uh, black university uh, to, um, uh, to establish their own police academy in the country. And they're bringing people in that would otherwise not be interested in serving as peace officers because they want to be the change they want to see. You know, I'm going to actually jump on the glacial change comment because it's true. I mean, I sit on the post Minnesota post advisory rules committee, and we are not going to get through all the rules in a year just because of the debate around it and the number of people involved. And we're only the advisory committee. So we're making recommendations to the actual post board. Uh, if there's anything needs a legislative change, the legislature is in session right now, but if they pass anything, it doesn't go into effect until next year. If we make curriculum changes on education, I mean, we've made our curriculum changes for next year already, but our next round will be for fall of 2022. So, you know, there, if we don't get things moving very quickly. But even if you start making changes within a department, you're still going to have to do a lot of buy-in. Um, you're going to have to give people time to adapt because if they've been doing something one way for the last 5, 10, 15 years, you can train them to do it differently, but they're going to need time to adapt. Um, just think about when you change holsters on your handgun. So if you wear out a holster and now this one has a little bit different mechanism for getting your gun out, you have to practice and then you have to keep practicing because even if you have one practice session, it doesn't change your hand motion. So, I mean, I think change is needed, but I agree with Carl that it's going to be nothing that's going to happen fast. Unless you completely take something away, it'll still take time to do that because we can't just fire everybody that's currently a law enforcement officer, nor do we want to. I mean, we have some very good officers out there, but you can't just dump the ranks and then start over. You have to integrate with what we have. So 
I think uh, glacial change is the one that's going to have to happen. And you know, one of the things that, oh, I'm sorry, Jen. Uh, that's okay. Go ahead, Carl. No, I was just going to say that one of the things I mentioned the students built upon that. I said, you know, the Washington Post is collecting data on police, uh, uh, basically uh, police killings, and they found uh, roughly, if, you know, average about a thousand a year. Um, and of course, lower levels of uses of force, you know, thousands of times a month. Um, and of those thousand uh, killings a year, let's say uh, about a dozen or so uh, of the officers wind up getting charged and very few of them get convicted. And, you know, yes, you could look at it as it being maybe uh, representative of bias in the criminal justice system. But, you know, I would think it's a hard sell to make the case that it is that biased. What it really tells me and what I and the reason I bring this up to the students is that it shows that even when fatal force is used, the overwhelming majority of the time it is done like it was in Burnsville this past week for a very righteous reason within the policy, within the confines of policy and law. And people realize that. And so when you see officers getting charged, yes, it makes front page news. But the reality of it is that's the top tier as, as uh, Walker's wedding cake model of criminology talks about. That's like the celebrated cases and then people tend to form their opinion. And the reality of it is, you know, there are three quarters of a million or roughly three quarters of a million police officers in this country that do a great job every single day and you don't know about it because it doesn't make the news. Yeah. John, what were you going to say? It, well, in relation to the change, and, and, and I somewhat agree uh, with, with this going to be taken some time, but also uh, we as law enforcement and police have been preaching for, for years and years about different things that are important to us. Accountability is once one that you mentioned. Uh, and we kind of now see that people are starting to get held accountable for some of the actions they're taking. But there are other things that have been in the hopper for several years. One of the things uh, that I think is really interesting is what PERF or the Police Executive Research Forum has been doing in reference to critical thinking about this term proportionality. And we talk about that a lot in class, uh, but, but you've heard that term come up a lot, uh, even in layperson's terms is like, how can somebody die over buying cigarettes? Um, you know, in reference to George Floyd. So I think you'll see some of these things uh, coming more to the foreground or the forethought of people um, another simplistic example is we always talk about supervision. I think you'll see supervision tightening down a lot more uh, than you have in the past. And it may be just for a temporary point till um, people believe we go back, quote unquote, to normal. Uh, you know, but I think initially, uh, I think you're going to see things like that occurring where you actually have supervisors on the scene uh, that are actually there for those types of events. I do think you that the only way you'd speed change is, is you tie it to money. It's like the cops office that really developed in the 1990s in the Clinton administration. You said you get money to hire officers if you follow <clears throat> community-oriented policing format. If you don't, you don't get it. Um, it's, if you don't, that's, that would be the only way to, to accelerate some of this. Um, 
policing for many places, they're going to, they're going to, there's going to be some defensiveness about change. It's, it's, we were talking about this in class the other day, this issue of cognitive dissonance. What does it take to get to change somebody's really firmly held beliefs about something? You know, and you have to have experiences that change that interactions with the community. And I think a lot of that, you know, for those that have kind of argued that we're in a new era of policing ever since 9-11, more militaristic, uh, homeland security focus, less community oriented policing, it, it's, it's a multitude of things that have to change to, to make real change in policing. And, and really to a larger issue, it's not just policing that has to change. You know, that's, it's, it's one element of what causes the conflict between communities and races and the police, but it's also economics, it's education. And my concern is one area gets too, fo too much focus and another area doesn't receive the focus that it should. Um, but specifically with policing, there could be some hard changes that have to be made that will be difficult for some in policing to accept like increases in training or education requirements that for some who are going to see that they or believe that it's worked for a long time the way it is to accept that change is necessary uh, that will be a real obstacle for some that are already in the field and can are will be concerned about the way they are uh, seen by their co-workers because they support change because it's almost like admitting you're wrong and you're being critical of others, that's not an easy thing to do. Well, that actually brings me up to uh, something. Uh, Mari Friesleben, who is the principal of North High School up in North Minneapolis, has been very vocal about the fact that there needs to be change, not just in policing, but across the system, including the education system. Um, she's also one of the principals up there that signed a letter to the Minneapolis Police Department asking for them to not stop policing. They still want their police op officers up in North Minneapolis that they still they actually still wanted police officers in the school up there because they said that, as she said, it's not just the police that needs to change. It's the entire system, starting from the education system and going through all of the social services systems and the criminal justice system. So, and that just getting rid of the police is not a good answer. So I think that really kind of ties into what you're talking about, Thor, and that we can't punish or ostracize officers who see that there needs to be change and embrace it. Um, and we've seen that happen in the past. So. All right. Well, so uh, you Thor mentioned something else that I want to go back to is now we kind of see uh, the media, especially lumping incidents together. So just as the Chauvin trial was ending, we had the shooting up in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. And then we just while the verdict was being read, we had the shooting out in Cincinnati, Ohio the police shootings, both of them were fatal. And now you see that the media is lumping them together. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Lumping the incidents together, um, good, bad? What, what are some issues with that? I think one of the reasons uh, it tends to uh, be, you know, media worthy is, you know, if it meets a particular, um, narrative that the media is trying to push and they find what works and the media, especially the news media, you know, they're advertisement driven, they're click uh, page click driven. And so if they find something that works, you know, this idea of social outrage, for example, uh, you know, they're going to presume that the police are 
uh, incorrect when, you know, the reality, for example, might show otherwise. The Blevins shooting in Minneapolis a few years ago is a good example of that. When you watch the video, that was a, you know, a, a, a righteous shoot, uh, but people immediately jumped to conclusions. When you look at cases like the Chauvin case and the Brooklyn Center case and the Yanez case where Yoranimo uh, Yanez killed Philando Castile, you can make the argument that the incidents reflect more of a lack of training and or a lack of supervision than anything else. But because the media narrative has been so persistent for so many years, the public wraps it in what I would refer to as a racialized blanket. And it's the only, they're, they're not going to be able to look at things and go, wow, that's a bad police procedure. That's legal, but it's not the best thing they could have done. They're just saying, oh, okay, light-skinned officer, dark-skinned victim. Um, and so the public tends to think very, very negatively. And again, even though the number of shootings involving, uh, you know, uh, police officers are relatively small, considering how many police officers there are, it does make page views and page clicks and advertising revenue occur for these news media folks. So they're going to hype it up and it gives people a false perception. I'll jump in there. I, th I think that uh, when you start grouping those types of things together, um, I, I don't think it's a good idea. I think that you have to look at each one of these incidents uh, separately um, and see that as best we can. But I think people need to keep in mind also that if we're watching a, a eight minute clip uh, or video, of something that's occurring, uh, we are not seeing all the information there uh, that, that's being taken into account. Um, and, and unfortunately, when you're looking at the media and what they put out, um, that's all you have to, to uh, see. So uh, my, my, like I say, my opinion is I think it's, I think we look at these things individually and then make a decision based on the information we have uh, but always keeping in mind there's extra information out there that we don't know. Yeah, people want simple stories. You know, it's the longer you have to invest in learning about it, the less likely people are to, to know about it. So if you write an article that's three pages long, people tend to read the first paragraph and they don't want to go any further because there's a lot of effort involved in that. Um, the media also has, you know, 30 second stories. So just like John was saying, that the, the, if the, what you need to look at is much longer than that, you don't see it. Um, these the, the real disservice is that when you do lump these together, it, it makes it, it exaggerates an issue in, in some senses, makes things appear worse than they are. It increases the friction, decreases the likelihood, actually in the end can decrease the likelihood that you're going to get the, the result that you want. You know, um, it, it pulls away from the, the real issues, I guess, because I think, you know, training, supervision are, have always been the areas where uh, agencies are typically found liable because they lack are lacking in those areas. Um, but it doesn't mean that every time one of these things happens that it's the same thing. I mean, they can still be wrong. They could, there can still be something wrong about it, but it, lumping them together um, I, I don't think it, 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 I think it tends to make it worse. 
This is also not to say that there isn't a racial disparity in police use of fatal force. And so, you know, I, I mentioned the Washington Post Police Shootings Database. They found that there was a 339% higher uh, rate of Black people killed than, uh, than white people. And if you look proportionally, uh, 6.96 uh, black people per million are killed by police each year compared with 1.59 million white people or 1.59 white people per million. Uh, and so, yes, we, you know, the, the media pushes the narrative uh, to the point where that's all people believe, but really the problems are, are different depending on where you go and what region you're talking about. And, you know, it's not to say that there isn't an issue, but, you know, to, to, to focus on that issue solely gives people, you know, I guess a false representation of what policing is and what it has become in all corners of the, uh, the United States versus, you know, maybe there's more of an issue in one area than another. So an idea I'd like to go back to about maybe an impact from the Chauvin trial, it kind of links in with John's talk about proportionality. You know, the original call for the, on the George Floyd incident was a forgery. You know, and a forgery, no matter what the level is, if it's a fake $20 bill, technically is a felony under Minnesota statute. But if you look at it without knowing that, it's over a fake $20 bill. The Brooklyn Center incident, he got pulled over for um, expired registration, right, which is a violation of the Minnesota statute. So how do we see the impact of the Chauvin trial on proportionality and what do we tell our students about when they're taking action to enforce the law? How do they balance what the statutes state to proportionality to what actions they take? What advice are you giving your students? There was an excellent article I thought in the Washington Post recently as an op-ed by a police officer named Patrick Springer that uh, talked about slowing down. And this issue of just like we're talking about proportionality, not rushing in all the all of the time, and, and in many of these cases that he described, had officers approached the situation differently, the end result would have been different to the degree where people's lives may not have have been they might have been saved had they handled it differently. The one example was the Tamir Rice case where the officers, you know, approached this young man in a park who's there by himself, and the situation rapidly. Um, you know, deteriorated to the point where he was shot and killed when his argument was, had that been done differently, that didn't need to happen. So this, I think that really relates back to training that, that especially that, that training that in deeply ingrains fear in, in, in officers that leads them to overreact in situations where it wasn't necessary. Um, yeah, so that the confrontation becomes deadly force when it could have been something else. And I think some of this even goes back, this proportionality goes back to organizational culture, uh, what different agencies tell their people in, in the training that they go through. Um, you know, a, a story comes to mind uh, of where um, we had an officer involved in a shooting <clears throat> and uh, he went before the grand jury and the shooting was where a car was driving straight toward him. And it, this officer could have taken a three foot step and got behind a building. But rather than that, he stood there and he shot 
uh, and killed the driver. And he was asked in court why he did that. And his response uh, wasn't a good response. It was, that's what I get paid to do. And, you know, that was kind of, uh, I think, a cultural thing that, you know, we, not, not all agencies, but a lot of agencies say, hey, you're the police, you need to catch people, that's your job, uh, you, you know, and it's frowned upon when people get away or things of that nature, when uh, we all know, in fact, that that, that shouldn't be the way things are. Uh, but I think there's still agencies out there that, that do those things. And I, it gets back to the warrior versus guardian. And how long have we been trying to change that mindset? Uh, and we all know that there's still agencies that believe in that warrior mentality. Well, and you can see that mentality in some of the recruiting videos, you know, they're showing all the super cool, neato, tactical SWAT toys. And, you know, the, the vast majority of officers never go their, their career without firing their weapon in reality. Um, but, you know, I think that when you're talking about proportionality, you know, some of the students were talking about, you know, well, you know, George Floyd was under the influence of fentanyl and, you know, okay, even if that was true uh, in the state of Minnesota, you can be under the influence in public of fentanyl and it's not illegal. You can't be, you can't be charged with possession by consumption in California. I think it's 11500 of the health and safety code, but it's not that way here. And even if it was, it wouldn't be a capital offense. And so was the force used not only proportional to the crime, but also proportional to the amount of resistance that he was displaying there. And that call uh, did not warrant uh, and his actions, uh, which you know, weren't actively aggressive, if you want to put it in you know, use of force continuum terms at that moment in time, did not warrant what Chauvin did. And so that's what people are seeing. You know, the person, you know, you, you saw this out in California with the uh, three strikes laws. You know, you hear the story, oh, I stole a pack of gum and I got sentenced to 20 years in the, in, in, in the prison. Um, people don't see that as fair. And if law enforcement isn't seen as fair and consistent, then we lose legitimacy. The moment we look at or we're seen as over-policing a particular neighborhood or focusing on a particular ethnicity or using force to an extreme, we don't have really any legal justification uh, then, yeah, the public's going to look at us as an illegitimate steward of the authority that they vested into us. When you feed into public fear about crime, which is something politicians have done for a long time, and sometimes the police have been guilty of that too, you come up with ideas that sound good intuitively, like zero tolerance policing. That sounds like a good idea. We're not, we're not going to let anybody get away with anything. But then research has shown the end result has been catastrophic for some neighborhoods making it difficult to get jobs, hold on to housing. Uh, the, the impacts were not intended, but you know, feel good policies like three strikes that people think that makes sense. It's been a long held attitude, I think about crime in this country for some time is that it's punishment oriented. So that if somebody's committing a crime, then they somehow deserve whatever it is they get. Uh, we had a, a neighboring jurisdiction when I was working in Oregon, that much like John described, a, a deputy was investigating a burglary at a farm said, the uh, suspect tried to flee. Instead of getting out of the way of the vehicle, the officer shot and uh, the driver of the vehicle who was killed. But the overwhelming public reaction was, 
you were involved in committing a crime, even though it was nonviolent, there was not pushback from the public that, that demanded a change in that pol agency policy. It was within policy. Nothing was done by the prosecuting attorney in that county. Change didn't happen. And, and so I think that proportion, that issue of proportionality is it's a societal change that I think we're starting to see where these issues about defunding and saying we could handle some of these situations differently with different, and sometimes with different people than the police. And that could be one of the end results. So I'm going to make a comment about proportionality, but I'm warning all three of you now, I'm going to ask for your closing thoughts on the impact of the trial. Um, as someone who was a field training officer, and I do this also in my classes, slow down was probably the most common term I ever used. With my rookies, I tell my students that all the way through um, the 343 class that I use, there are such few times where you have to rush in. Um, you might be seeing an assault in progress that you have to go stop, but many times you can take just that few seconds to stop and listen when you get out of the car, take, a, take in the scene, survey it, slow down your communications, all of that. So I'm, I, I will say slow down, again, was probably the most common thing I told rookies, and I feel trained about 45 of them, um, and it's probably the most common thing I tell my students, even in their communications role play. Um, now, slow down would have not changed the George Floyd incident because uh, Jarek Chauvin came in after things were already in place, but it may help other ones, but it doesn't fix everything. So, all right, I'm going to do this in reverse order. We're going to talk, we're going to ask Carl for his closing thoughts on the impact of the Chauvin trial. I think what it will do is... Uh, I think it will influence the students uh, and the potential police officers out there that are considering uh, joining wherever they are, uh, our students and others, to uh, really take a hard look at the role of policing in communities and really take into consideration not only what the public expects of their peace officers, but also, uh, you know, the, the immense responsibility of using force and again in a firm consistent manner that is within the confines of law and policy and if they are able to do that and if they have the emotional maturity and if they have the ability to know when to use force appropriately when to dial it back when the person stops resisting and you know render first aid if they did have to use force those types of things uh, they will realize that they can do a full career and not feel as though they have some sort of a target on their back from the prosecutor's office or the public and the public will in turn come to gain greater faith in their peace officers and you know law enforcement will retain some of that legitimacy and public support that has been lost in uh, I would say the last 20 or 30 years. Thor, your closing thoughts. I think that issue of legitimacy is key. And I think part of it, the, the way forward might be as the conversation develops and people are a little bit less sensitive, especially in law enforcement, that defunding the police might not be such a dirty word that accepting that the police have been given a bunch of roles that they never should have been you know, responsible for in the first place, that there are alter, alternate um, solutions to some of these things, whether it's having more mental health resources for some of these calls where the police are sent in, uh, a wide variety of different areas that could be influenced. And, and that could actually improve the relationship between the police and the community because they're not put in some of these situations where they didn't belong in the first place, where we've seen some of these bad outcomes. So right away, the natural instinct is push back. I don't want change. 
uh, protect my empire, so to speak. But this may be the opportunity to do that, to, to find some of these, to, to do some of the things that they've said for many leaders have said in policing for years, which are we're given too many responsibilities. We're not trained for all of these things. Maybe now there can be a little bit better understanding both within policing and the public that that change is necessary. John, your closing thoughts? Yeah, I think we, we've talked a lot about change and, and we all know that most people don't like change. But I think um, we're at a point in society where right now uh, police agencies uh, and not only just the police, but a lot of different entities, uh, the time is ripe for change. Um, and one of the ways that whether they be public or private organizations do better and better it is by change uh, to, to be able to identify things that we need to make better and to make those changes to make things better and i think police agencies are uh, specifically talking about the police are in that position right now and uh, personally uh, i think Policing has needed to be changed for quite some time. A lot of different um, ideas in reference to it. And, and I hope that, uh, that we as police are smart enough to uh, take that ball, so to speak, and run with it and try to uh, make our agencies uh, better for society. Well, I do want to take, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me. I mean, I look at the four of us, and we have like over 80 years of law enforcement experience, if you add it up between the four of us. Um, and then we chose to come to academics because we're, we're committed to the education of our up-and-coming law enforcement professionals. So I love having these conversations with you. I'm always surprised that we do share many of the same thoughts, although we might have different interpretations of it or different paths as we go forward. But I look forward to uh, next academic year when we can do some more podcasts and see what happens this summer. So thank you for your time. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash Let's Talk Gov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode and thank you for listening.